Hello and welcome to Last Week on Earth with the Global Arena Research Institute. I'm your host, Odessa Primus. Today we're chatting with intelligence expert Joanna Bryson on the definition of intelligence, artificial and natural, AI as an efficiency tool, putting AI products into ordinary product law, how do we perceive the global bipolar AI situation, why Google and Apple don't patent that much, China, Russia, Iran, and the EU, who, what, and why. With degrees in social and computer sciences from Chicago, Edinburgh, and MIT, Bryson's research appears in venues from Reddit to Science, and she advises companies, governments, transnational agencies, and NGOs globally, particularly in AI policy. Since February 2020, Joanna has been Professor of Ethics and Technology at Herdy School, a government's university in Berlin. Enjoy, share, and subscribe. You're described as an expert in intelligence, both the natural and artificial. So I wanted to ask, how would you define intelligence, just as it is? Okay, so one of the things people say is like, oh, it's really hard to define intelligence. And all they have to do is look at a dictionary. There's plenty of definitions of, of, of intelligence. Um, the one that I usually use is actually one of the oldest ones. It goes back to, uh, well, I shouldn't say the oldest. It goes back to the 19th century uh, when people were trying to understand which animals were more intelligent than which other animals. And so basically by that definition, intelligence is the capacity to uh, take advantage of opportunities and to handle threats. So uh, the way I, I retranslate that into the modern era is to say it's a form of computation. So you have to take information about the current context and transform that information into action. So that's the, the fundamental piece. It's like intelligence is the subset of all the forms of computation that generates action. Nice. Thank you. Why do you personally want people to use AI? Personally, in a sense that if you were um, someone that's just a literature lover and you had a book that you really liked and you'd be like, you should really read this because... So I, I don't usually advocate for people to use AI, not as individuals. Um, I, I, uh, I get why, in fact, we do use it, it's ubiquitous. Um, I don't wanna tell people to you know, cut themselves off from the world. So I guess the main reason that you would ever use digital tools is um, to you know, get more things done more efficiently, right? So it, it, the, I think it, it's more important, usually what I spend time doing, trying to get people to do is to realize that when they do use artificial intelligence, the, the data consequences of that, the privacy consequences of that, and making sure that they're mindful of, you know, do they just have like the, the cameras and the speakers, the eyes, ears, and mouth of, of an organization in their household, and then they think it's their friend. It's like, it's not your friend. It's, 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 a, it's an agent of, of, a, of a foreign organization. Um, yeah. It's a tool so, that we should be in control of. Yeah, it's a tool. And, and one of the things that I've been doing, part of the reason I came to Berlin is that it's really important that we do have access over making sure that tool is used in a, in a safe way, in a way that's safe for society as well as for individuals within the society to, to keep uh, the organizations that are, that are uh, producing these digital products to, to make them as liable as any other organization that sells a product for their, for their uh, impact on society and on health, consumer health and security. Okay, that, that sk skips a few questions straight to concerning building AI and building these tools. Who has the, the responsibility to apply any sort of ethical principles into, into the AI? Is it like, I mean, I wrote, can it be applied later with the buyer or the owner? But of course, I, I don't necessarily agree with that. Does it need to be discussed uh, as the AI is ordered or designed or built? And to what capacity can those responsibilities be divided? This is part of the reason I really, really want to put AI products into ordinary product law. 
It's not like we're going to come up with all the easy answers at the beginning. Sometimes their mistakes will be made. And, and we want to know, was that a legitimate mistake? Were you doing the best practice? Did you follow all the standards that people that had a decent amount of education that, you know, that, that, that were running a company, had, had they done due diligence, had they done their research? before you release the product, you know, did you, and this can be anything from like the, you know, the, the, you know, the basic stuff about like gender bias or something uh, to like, you know, is, is your product altering uh, <laughs> the, 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 the assault vectors for democracy or whatever, you know? So there's all kinds of things that um, people wouldn't have initially known and couldn't have known, but then uh, two years later, they should have known. And did they, did they behave as if they understood the urgency of the problem? Did they uh, behave as if it was only urgent if it was America that was a threat and not if it was Thailand? You know, that, that, those kinds of questions. I don't think there's something particularly exceptional about AI uh, beyond the fact that it's software. Uh, so, so similarly, if you think about, you know, if something goes wrong, if your bank loses all your money somehow, right? But let's say, you know, it's definitely your bank that was at fault. You know, like you, you never signed off on this, there's some lo massive loan against you and you never signed it and somebody didn't check to see if you agreed. Okay, so they should have done it. Do you need to know who screwed up? No, that's not your problem. Your, your relationship is with the bank because the bank is the one who provided the service to you. Mm. So again, a service is almost a kind of a product. And, and we agree with that. Some people think that's true of all services, but certainly with things like banking and, and medicine, we've, we've kind of, we've, if that's important enough, we've really got that well legislated. So I think the same thing is true that, that we, it's not a big issue. Um, for the individual customer the, the, and, and when companies make it out to be, they're just trying to evade their, their responsibilities. It's easy to make digital products through which no responsibility can be traced, but it's also easy to make products that you could completely see that you, you know, to capture all the information about, you know, how did we know this was okay? You know, who had access to which information when, you know, all that stuff is standard, standard to software engineering again, and also to banking, you know, all the, I, I was once on stage with uh, at a Tim O'Reilly conference in New York, it's a giant room, right? And Tim O'Reilly himself was like on, you know, the same time as me and, and some other people, you know, and most of the people, not, not O'Reilly, but most of the people are getting out and saying, transparency for AI is totally impossible, you know? And I don't know why they were saying that. Right. But anyway, you went downstairs at that very meeting and here were all the people that were selling transparency products into the well-regulated industries. So if you go into the energy sector or you go into the automotive sector, they already have, uh, they are following good, you know, DevOps as it's called. They, they can already be audited because they're used to it. That's part of their product creation and adding AI into their products has made their products more efficient, but also has not altered that much what they do for compliance. And so the question is only why is it the standalone software companies are not being subjected to the same level of investigation when we, we demonstrably, I, I, I can just assert it to you and, I, and, and it's easy to tell if you go into a software company, you could have been capturing who did what to whom, <laughs> to which code I should say not to whom. Uh, and, uh, and in fact, we, we have been doing that since the 80s. I was there when that was a new idea, right? It's like, wow, this is cool. Some companies capture this stuff, you know, it's called revision control. Um, Right. Because it's super useful. You want to know who to call up. Even if you're a tiny company, you just want to be able to say, hey, Ted, why did you change that code last Wednesday? And they'll go, oh, sorry, I was going to write a note about that. Sorry, you know, that, that's something that's useful to everyone. But the, the point is that now when you're doing something that is altering the world, then you need to, um, and maybe what you didn't expect that at first, but it's taken off. 
what do you do? One of the things is you got to go out and cyber secure your records about all the things you did so that you can prove in court, you know, five years in the future that you were doing the right things. As soon as this came, you, you got, you realized that you were onto something that you used, took the right steps to protect your product and to protect your customers. I like, I really like that you're bringing AI down to earth so that it's not this impossible black box for, for most people to, to sort of have, yeah. you know, be judgmental about, but don't really understand. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, absolutely. It's impossible to know like what every little weight does in a deep lane. No, no, no. Similarly, it's absolutely impossible to know what every synapse in your brain is doing. But if you like somehow, you know, use hate speech against me, I wouldn't care about the neurons. <laughs> you know, I, right. I would be able to get you in trouble with your employer or, or I don't know, broadcast people or something. <laughs> I <laughs> this isn't really radio. This is something else. But anyway, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. The yeah. Is that we, that, Yes, you can make, you can, I, I was, so all those records I was just talking about, you can delete them. Okay. Then there would be no transparency, but that is negligent. In fact, it might, it might be actually culpable because you know, we know that you had them and you deleted them. That would be bad. Right. But yeah. failing to, failing to capture the information in the first place is negligent. And then, um, or, or if you could fraudulently alter it, that would be fraud. Right. Um, but there's never a point where you absolutely need to have like that level of detail that that the that the people that were doing these scare stories were talking about, like, oh, we, we don't know exactly how deep learning works. You know how to build it, you know, and then you can show yeah. us how you knew that it was ready to be released. You know, that so what yeah. tests did you do before you release it as a product? And then you can keep the documentation that you did that, as I said, you did due diligence. Mm-hmm. Okay. So I'm going to bring this straight up to a completely different proportion and talk okay. about global bipolar AI power situation. <laughs> and I, um, I was I was skimming through through your website and I caught some wording as in the reality of it. So how like because obviously the way we perceive it, especially people in politics and um, probably the media less than in politics, but still perceive it as this, this again, this imminent threat, but as, at the same time, they do sort of still think about it as a black box, maybe unconsciously, because truly they don't really understand what they're dealing with. So what is the actual situation? How real is this threat? And how much should we be, um, and we're speaking here from Europe, so how much, how much should we, as a global population that's not necessarily in the United States or China, what should we be doing right now? Part of the reason I'm in Europe is because I think Europe is doing the best possible thing to be doing, and it's inspiring other regions to do the same. And that is to set the rules by which that those kinds of products can be utilized within our territory and within our space. However, let's go back and re-examine the narrative. As you mentioned, I had a paper that came out actually in 2021 with Helena Malakova. Um, I don't know how far into how much detail you want me to give, but at the time, and I and I note that this, I, I think this paper has been quite effective because I have not seen this slide for a while. But at the time, for years, people have been showing some version of a slide that was like, you know, here's the biggest, you know, here's the 20 biggest companies for market cap, and you know, most of them are in China or America. And China was actually, if you listen at it carefully, it was Japanese and Korean companies. Now I, I, I'm here to tell you that Korea and Japan are not China. <laughs> they don't, it's not even like the EU where they kind of, it's like from Germany and France, well, you know, we kind of coordinate things. No, <laughs> they're not China. So, so it's ridiculous to put those together. But anyway, the, it is true that there's not a lot of uh, giant European companies. Why? Because we have a well-regulated well space. It's not just that somehow we're blocking innovation or something. We have huge amounts of innovation, but we don't, uh, 
we, we don't allow like this, this. In fact, part of the reason we have as strong of antitrust legislation as we have is that the US and UK enforced it on Germany after World War II and Japan, incidentally. So they, so they said, look, when you have too large of this national champion companies, that turns out to either you'd wind up taking them over or they wind up taking you over and either way you have autocracy. So you don't want that. You, and so the, whatever that big national German company was, it was broken into the pieces, which are like Bayer and whatever. They're still, these still excellent companies. So the point is that, uh, so then Helena, I was just saying, you know, I thought we didn't want big companies. And, and Helena was like, what even is a platform? Like what is a top 20 platform? So what does that even mean? So she, chose, a paid, she took a consultation from some patent experts and, and chose a particular WIPO category because we were doing this like, you know, whatever nights and weekends, you know. Right. She, she chose this particular uh, category of the WIPO database, which is the World IP something organization, I guess, <laughs> database that, that did like, that was clearly AI. Like there was, it wasn't that all AI is necessarily in there, but like everything in there was AI. So it's kind of a random sample of all the available uh, patents. And what it looks like, what it turned out was that the U.S. has more than the rest of the world combined, but uh, but you the EU actually had more than China, and uh, and everybody except the U.S. and China and the EU had more than the EU and China combined. So there was a ton of patents coming out of somewhere, and we didn't really do that much more analysis into it. We also were looking at market capitalization, so we were looking at two things, and we said, look, both of these are kind of arbitrary. Because for example, Apple, they don't, and Facebook too, they don't patent that much. They're like, oh, we don't want, uh, you know, they basically would prefer to, to defend their IP than to reveal it um, and, 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 have, and then have lawyers uh, defend it. Um, whereas some companies like Google and IBM had been uh, competing for, uh, you know, competing for good programmers or whatever on the basis of letting them have lots of patents. So anyway, uh, I have a, a, a dissertation suit this year, and so this is unpublished, but she reran those stats for a number of years. And it actually turns out that China and Japan have just been massively scaling up their uh, patent production, not so much the market capitalization. So a lot of the market capitalization is still some weird thing going on in the US, which no doubt has to do with the US having such a domination over how finance is handled, which is, I think, a global insecurity. I think we want redundancy and you know, just like we don't wanna have only one airplane producer or only one GPS for the world. I think we don't wanna have only one financial uh, system, which is not a, an endorsement of blockchains now. <laughs> I mean, like, or, or cyber cryptocurrency. I, I, I just say, I'm just saying we ought to have a few other cities you can clear in besides New York and London. Oh yeah, but anyway, it's really interesting that someone has chosen that particular metric and decided to pour so much resources into it in, in Japan and China. In fact, in our paper, we said something about, look, China is you know, sort of playing by the rules here. And, and some of the country, companies that we know are issues, you know, like for example, Russia had said, you know, whoever controls the AI controls the world and, and, uh, and we, don't, we don't have any humans on the loop on our autonomous magic uh, 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 tanks, you know, that, that it, and, uh, but anyway, so I, I wish I had been explicit about China, I mean, about Russia. I was thinking about Russia, North Korea, Iran. Iran's great at AI. And I also think Iran gets a rough deal. I mean, I know they have issues, but I understand <laughs> they're horrible issues. But you know, every every nation has some bad issues and especially every powerful nation. What's something that you could say about AI in Iran? It's just good. 
it's good. Yeah, yeah, they're they're good at ha- they're hacking cybersecurity, but they're also the robotics is pretty good. They they really put a lot of money into it because of the earthquake situation, actually, right. but maybe also because of the oil drilling or something. But anyway, it's just good. They're, it's it's high quality. Um, it's not like it's really well, you know, they don't publish a lot of NIPs or whatever, and they're not even able to. They're not fully engaged with the academic community in a way that that makes their papers well well written and stuff like that. But they have they have they have high capacity. They're just good at this stuff. Um, so anyway, the 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 point is that uh, we didn't name any names. We just pointed out that that China was playing a game that other countries that we knew had capacities were not playing. And uh, so anyway, I think it, what's going on is that China uh, is thinking that maybe another thing like Trump will happen, where where you know the U.S. will dismantle its own capacities, right? Or I don't know if you want to say it's the U.S., you know, but but uh, the 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 dynamics of its democracy affords somebody <laughs> dismantling the U.S.'s own capacity, and mm-hmm. uh, and so then China was looking to sort of step up and not so much lead the free world as lead the um, rule-based world, the rule-based system, and and um, and I and then the fact that Japan suddenly was putting so much effort into this makes me think maybe they were hoping to be the next. Uh, Maybe they just saw the threat from China in a different way or whatever, but that they were trying to strengthen this sort of more G7 strategy on this. But right. again, it's really, really interesting that those are the guys putting so much into patents and again, not putting it into market capitalization. So I, I don't know. I, I, th- I sort of thought when I looked at the numbers on China for market capitalization, that they had decided to let a couple of their companies, you know, play this game, try to try to you know get in and get that kind of leverage. Um, but that we know that China really, really cares about control. And, and one of the things, and again, that's what antitrust was supposed to be about, and the US pursued it. That's why the US innovated it, was because in the, in the you know, 1800s, it wasn't clear that uh, a democracy could govern really, really powerful co- companies. And that was the previous time that we saw this kind of real uh, huge uh, escalation of inequality and, and concentration of power in small numbers of people. And uh, there was a question like, you know, because so a king could just like assassinate someone, yeah. but, but a democracy, what could they do? And so they decided what to do was to make it illegal and then to sort of to, to have these uh, remedies of breaking things up. And it's not even just breaking up. It's also just, it's okay to be the biggest. It's just not okay to, once you become over a certain threshold, you should have extra obligations. Yeah. And that, that also includes uh, at some point you might transition to being something called a utility. Which again, everyone was saying, oh, I was at Princeton in like the mid the mid teens, and everyone's like, oh, that's okay. AI is a utility. It's like, and then you find out nobody knows how to govern utilities either. <laughs> you you think, oh yeah, it's a, you know, it's a monopoly, it's you know, I, I I pay utility bills, it must be no, it's not actually solved. It's not clear if they should be state entities or if they should be private entities or or what their limits should be. But anyway, people, we have some idea of how to do that. It's not, it's not having a complete, uh, it's not there's a complete universal agreement, but there's some idea of how to handle it. And I think we should be now thinking about transnational utilities, including things like the climate and petrochemical mm-hmm. um, and pharmaceutical and, and, and finance, like, and these weird consultancies, God, what are they? <laughs> but, but also including uh, digital, digital uh, technologies. Um, mm. They're based on real infrastructure, which you do like like with airplanes. You have you have uh, fiber optic cables wrapping the entire world, so so that is something. And and uh, and it's a kind of infrastructure we should be giving companies credits for providing those services, mm. but also obligations about exactly how much do they have to and how do they fairly distribute it to every country, not just the ones that are big enough, um, <laughs> you know, to demand it. All right. 
Um, yeah, it's interesting. We, we run into this sort of uh, conversation a lot with our, um, well, also with our Gary network, but with our guests about oh, how much of um, AI exploration and development and research should be staying in Europe, how much we should have transatlantic cooperation or global cooperation. And there's some people that are that are so defiantly on the side of keeping a keeping our knowledge in uh, in Europe because uh, otherwise they feel like the US and China will just you know are are running away from uh, running away in terms of how quickly uh, they are able to develop their technologies as well as how much they can finance them um, but yeah that's it's it's I guess everyone to themselves but <laughs> Super interesting question, really, when you get down to it, because, uh, you know, I'm sorry, to, I'm sorry to, you know, it's, it's easier to be uh, uh, sort of religious and, and, and take one perspective about how it can possibly be and to go up to an extreme. But usually the real world is about trade-offs and the trade-offs change depending on new capacities, right? And, and new realities, right? So like whoever thought we were going to be locked down for two years, like that was yeah. not something I ever thought as a kid. Oh, I wonder if I would be locked into my house for two years. You know, that, that no one thought that, no. right? I think there's a big decision to be made by China right now, again, about like what, what kind of order do they want? And if they, if they violate the international uh, agreed rules of law, laws of war, and, and back the aggressor state, then I think this will go on for a long time. Whereas if they, um, if they say, no, this is right, we do want to be the new leaders of the, of the rule-based thing, it's clear which side is the aggressor, um, we are not going to provide them with either munitions or, or, or money or fuel, um, then I think it'll be quite short. I don't think Russia can get on with nobody providing them money or, or, or parts or, uh, or, um, or, or indeed food. So I think that, you know, that's, that's what we are looking to see. Are we better now at coordinating a response that benefits the majority of people? So there's... All right, yeah, yeah, let's talk about AI in Europe. So the, yeah. so the main point is that uh, what should we be doing? It, it, first of all, it isn't what everybody says. There is a lot of AI being generated all over the world. Now, it does matter that some parts of the world are not as coordinated as other parts of the world. But the EU is setting precedent about, look, you can be coordinated and not give up your sovereignty. And that's you know, not, not much. There's a, there's a good balance between that. Mm -hmm. In fact, I would like to see the, uh, the United States states, not the federal government, but the state level, taking some of the lessons out of what the EU has achieved. Once, you once there's been that example shown that even if you can only coordinate sort of five or 10% of the world's economy, you still get a, a proportionate amount of power. Um, and, and also hopefully people like the EU and, and I don't know, the African Union or something will have set enough of a precedent about like, this is the, the level of, of uh, respect we demand. We both are innovating legally in ways that can benefit others. And we are um, demonstrating how we can, as in terms of real politic, coordinate our economic might. If you were to design, design, uh, sorry, design um, the decision-making table, who would be sitting there about AI policymaking? And then I'm not, you could say, you could name actual people, but like, what are the type of people that should be sitting there? Because often we always criticize these decision-making panels being, you know, all the same person. It's not, doesn't have anybody from this sector, doesn't have anybody from the other sector, yeah. but what ideally would be the consistency of a decision-making panel and AI policy? Yeah, I guess it depends in some ways what you're talking about decision-making. I, I think one of the really, really, really important things that people haven't got their head around is that government is what we pay to do that stuff. You know, it is, 
And when you try to set up some other weird thing, then you're actually dismantling the, your main defenders, right? So while it's useful to have a panel that's like informing, you could have, a, you know, and then we could say, oh yeah, we want a civil society. We want to have, you know, we want to have a large tech, small tech, middle-sized tech. We want to have academics. Oh yes, you know, we have to, uh, journalists, you know, whatever. Philosophers. But, yeah, philosophers. Well, philosophers are kind of academic, but I, I uh, so we could talk about how all these nice perspectives it is to take, but I just don't want us to forget that ultimately, if you're really talking about the people, the way you phrase the question, then I would say, then you're talking about governments. And so you're, you're sort of saying, how do I think we should run government? I think that, that although I'm now in a governance school and I'm learning a lot about it, I'm not entirely qualified for it, but I do find the German system really interesting, at least the way it started out. When I first got here, AI was run by the Department of Economics, uh, the Department of uh, Education and Research, which kind of makes sense, and the Department of Labor and Society. And I thought that was a really interesting mix. It was great to have somebody who was really committed not only to the future of work through the Ministry of Labor, but Ministry of Society for the people who didn't have work, they were out of work or who were uh, retired or or whatever, you know, migrants, everybody. Uh, so I thought that was really interesting. I think there's a really important component of having justice as well. And I think it, it, there's got to be a security. You need to have, uh, it's transnational. So like the department, the state department should be there um, because you are talking a lot about negotiating things, but you really do want to have the military at the table. I, you know, I would never have said that. I was a you know, knee-jerk pacifist growing up. I, I didn't see it. But when you compartmentalize that conversation, it's kind of a lie. <laughs> there's right. something that there's like the elephant that that like you could squash all the rooms and 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 it's not good to not have them at the table so i've in my experience it is really useful to have you know constructive people out of, out of the military informing things so i do see panels like this sometimes I've, I've seen some pretty interesting stuff by like un you know putting together a small room where they're trying to get advice about things and so then the question is often like which countries do you have and it's interesting when, when, as well as countries, you have a couple of uh, tech companies or whatever. And, and honestly, in the meeting I was in, only one of the tech companies was up to it. One of the tech companies had a proper diplomat, and the other one just had a very bored representative that could give a talk, but, but was playing with their phone the whole time. And, and I was just like, you know, this is insane. You're, you're in a very small room with some incredibly important people, <laughs> and, and you're playing with your phone. <laughs> But that that company, although it was really large, it had never thought that they needed to have diplomats, and they do. Yeah. Well, I guess it's like it's like it's it is like uh, countries too. It isn't good to only have you know China and the United States and, and maybe Britain or something random at the table. It, you need to have also representation. Representation. It's hard to work with two hundred people, although UNESCO pulls it off. But you need at least representation uh, circulating through from from lots of other kinds of countries. And so, again, these are problems that UN has been dealing with for a while, and, and maybe they will now re reform, and, and uh, maybe the world is just becoming more equal, and we can have vetoes on the Security Council. Although, again, some people think that I was always taught the vetoes were just real politics because I was American. Right. But it's just like, you know, anyone who can do gets a veto. <laughs> well, you know, it seems that, that Africa is actually much better to able to deploy the resources of the UN than Asia is. Um, precisely because there are no veto players and there's no permanent members there. So they're figuring out the, the game that is the UN and they're figuring out how to rotate through and, 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 and negotiate and have things go through. 
Um, and so they're actually getting a lot more resources out of, and now maybe the UN wants Africa to get resources, um, but, but still it, it, it was an interesting narrative that between China and India or Japan, I don't remember, somebody was just constantly canceling stuff. Oh, Russia, of course, China and Russia. Yeah. One or the other would cancel anything. And so nothing was ever happening in Asia. And so they couldn't improve the situation there. Whereas in Africa, they really were using the UN to help improve the situation. What are you passionate about at the moment that we haven't <laughs> spoken about? I don't know. I'm not that, I'm not that good at remembering that. I, I, because I think I already did that. I've, I've gotten really good at bringing this stuff up. Yeah. So I am, I am really, really concerned about, um, oh, I know one thing I mentioned, Brexit. I, right. I, I, I saw one of the things I really think is we, I had been saying for years that uh, I think we were going to, in 100 years, teach Brexit and Trump as early shots in an assault on NATO, um, a war against NATO. And, wow. and now, now, like what I've been learning from, from you know, listening to Zelensky is that, uh, you know, that war started maybe around 2007. Actually, Ischinger says that, that look, Putin announced this war in 2007 here at my Munich conference, you know, uh, security conference. But then, yeah, when the, with the assault on Georgia in 2008 and, and the assaults on Chechnya and, and I, mean, I feel like, so we, we've watched that. I don't want to make it all about Russia. I do think that there's some other actors that are all about autocracy. And I don't, and that's why I'm saying I don't know how it's going. I don't want to say either that it's just about autocracy, but opposed to the rule of law. They don't like the limits that are enforced on them about, uh, uh, for example, money laundering and right. those kind of concerns. And unfortunately, that includes, includes some of the tech giants, some of the tech people. Do not like to have, you know, and that's why you have these these unholy alliances between rich individuals in the U.S. and U.K. and Russia and Saudi and you know various groups like that are willing to work together to try to undermine the rule of law that is creating a world in which they are so dominant. You know, they're 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 tearing out their own foundations. It's insane, and and they only see the local limits, and, and it's like the you don't know what you have to till it's gone kind of thing. That, that they don't see that. They are creating the entropy that they now fear by doing that. But I don't think it's just them. I do think that the information age has made it harder. Oh, this is something we're going to say way back. I don't remember why, but going way back to something, when, when you're talking about all this power, or you know, once you've made it, when you're a veto, the Chinese don't want to live in China. <laughs> you know, like right. the, at least not their leaders, not you know, the kids. Um, in fact, actually, Putin's just made a big deal about this in Russia. Oh, you may want to be out somewhere with your gender freedoms. <laughs> Which may have been a little dig at Hungary, but anyway, but no, but the but they you know that the, the uh, you, and your lattes and whatever. I think that that the fact is that if you can't create a country where you would want to live, then why 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 be in power? You know, there something is going really wrong, and you really do want to look and see uh, if there's another way to put things together. Although I have to say, I, I can't remember the exact turn of phrase, but I happened to have been at the World Economic Forum when it was becoming evident about what had happened with Brexit and Trump. And, and China and Russia were both in, in meetings saying, well, you know, I think you should really think about whether possibly the way that you have your government put together isn't really appropriate to the country. And you could tell it's actually that they're saying back to people what people have been saying to them. You know, the right. exact same phrasing. And but now instead of it being about like the autocracy, it was about democracy. Be, be, but well, it's not all democracies. It doesn't seem like they've been as successful in undermining more modern democracies. It's I think it's the first past the post. So when you have something like proportional vote that allows you to have multiple parties, it seems like you literally have more legitimacy, which includes it, that it makes it harder to undermine through the information. Anyway. I also think autocracy is getting to find information. You know, the people are demanding things. They like, we want clean air. 
you know, you're in India yeah. and China. It's like, where the hell is our clean air? We want to be able to breathe. We don't like having our kids die. Uh, we want to have a higher life expectancy. It's pretty fundamental, like clean air. And the uh, the Russian you know, people who said, uh, no, we want to continue being artists and academics and not be locked up and killed. So we've decided to go to, to Turkey of all places. You know, you're losing if people are going to Azerbaijan and Turkey for freedom. <laughs> you know, that's, yeah. That's pretty sad. And so I think this is what's terrifying people and that we ought to be able to come up with uh, better solutions so they shouldn't have to be terrified, but they need to recognize that, that there are these changes that have to be made. To turn it to positive things, <laughs> if we can, what would you say that people, and I don't just mean um, the common people, everyone that that has regular jobs and so on, but what should the community that is interested in AI, from whatever perspective, what should they be excited about? Well, real engagement in democracy. I mean, if you're going to do something like radically overturn how you do voting in Britain and America. <laughs> and do you or, think AI has a role in that? Okay, going back to what is AI, um, I think that the digital technology, I think, I, I literally think AI is like, AI is like the spotted owl of digital technology, you know, like everybody notices it. It's literally the face that has eyes, it has ears, you know. <laughs> and, and so people get that that has changed things. In fact, they, they don't even appropriately always understand how it's changing things. They think it's like personally deciding to change things. But nevertheless, it's sort of brought attention into something. But I do think it's, it's communication technology in general and the digital era in particular and how it affects, you know, property and, and the rate of communication. Um, you know, going back to what you asked a long time ago about like, what should Europe be doing and should, should we be more protectionist? Um, there has, uh, altruism, you know, contributing to public goods, it doesn't make sense unless the people who contribute are more likely to get benefit. It doesn't have to be perfectly likely, right? It, it yeah. isn't, you know, there will be a diverse uh, population, but there does have to be some kind of advantage. However, that doesn't mean necessarily complete protectionism. Because if you're the ones that are building the AI, if, if you're building the system and if you're distributing, you have a good system of education, then you will get more advantage out of it. Even if it's like a completely fair, that the technology is totally fair and anyone could use it, the people who understand it will use it better. So I, th I think that's sort of what we should be going for, trying to do is to, you know, just to help each other understand things better. I was just literally having lunch with someone from the German government who was saying that you know, none of their projections show that they have enough people to meet all the needs, you know, like, so it's this complete, you know, the future of work stuff is so ridiculous. It was like, yes, there will yeah. be plenty of jobs. There are plenty of jobs, but, but, but will we have people that are sufficiently well educated to be able to do them? And I don't, it, it's not as motivated, right? So like there's a lot of jobs that people don't want to do farming or whatever. But I think with AI, one of the things we could do is make, jobs more accessible by trying to trying to figure out the ways to accelerate people's learning uh, into the capacities of what they could do. So it should be something that empowers people and empowers uh, workers. However, the more you can do that with AI, the more you make people exchangeable with each other, and that tends to depress wages. And I think right. that's bad. But I think that's something that, again, Germany has done a pretty good job of saying, well, tough, we're, <laughs> we're going to make sure that there's like a decent minimum wage and things like that. So I think you know, good good minimum wages and good uh, social inclusion policies are are um, a better idea than like universal basic income and some of the other ideas that people have come up with. You really, for security, a society needs people to not only you know survive but to really be included. And their brains are working with other people's brains, and they're solving problems, and they're and they're um, 
they're connected to people watching out for each other. You know, they're, they're, a society needs to be a network. It can't just be like a lot of isolated people watching television like they're in Matrix or something. Okay, last question. What's your favorite application of technology? Well, I, I should come up with something really brilliant like writing. <laughs> sure. <laughs> yeah, no, I love, I love, you can look at my shelf. I love, I love reading and writing and getting ideas. I appreciate now and I would appreciate more of is uh, allowing people to everybody to speak in their native language and that, that we have a decent level of uh, tra- uh, translation. I just think it's so unfair that some people have to fight so hard uh, against language. And in fact, I hate, I hate it when, uh, you know, like, again, if you're at something like Global Partnership for AI or, or the you know, various things, Macron will come and he will speak in French and, and it's translated and it's beautiful. It's just fantastic. And then he'll switch to English. And, and it gets clunkier, you know, and it's just right. like, no, please keep speaking French. That was so beautiful. <laughs> oh. It's just so I want everybody to speak in their native language. And I know we aren't all as eloquent as Macron, but but I, I would like I, that's something I really uh, am excited about. And it's not like everyone with any amount of AI, some, you know, two, two English speakers will not always understand each other. Right. Native English speakers. Yeah. But so it's not like it's going to magically make everybody understand everything. But, but the more we can do of that, the, the cooler. I just love that I can just click on Twitter and get like, you know, oh, that's what that guy said. <laughs> oh, wow. Well, cool. That's a really cool, cool note to end on. Thanks so much. Thank you for listening. The Global Arena Research Institute specializes in high-level research and analysis using big data and AI. In our podcasts, we bring you experts from various fields for fascinating and useful discussions. Until next time, have a great day.